0: Welcome to History City, the story of the second most important place in England. Possibly. I'm Guy Morgan, and we're travelling from the end of the last ice age to the present day. First, let's hear the spirit of York fill us in on what's happened so far.
1: York was pivotal in the fate of England in 1066, but its role is not over. As a focus for the rebellious North, the city is a target for King William, disgruntled English aristocrats, the last of the Vikings, and opportunistic Scots. It's hardly going to be a quiet backwater.
2: William also comes up to York for a kind of Official ceremonial moment after getting crowned he comes up to York And I think it's part of the kind of show of the the post-conquest But at first when he comes up and he's still in friendly mode with the North um, And there's a, a document that says, you know, I greet in friendly fashion all of my thanes in Yorkshire both French and English so things haven't kicked off. He's trying at this point to mollify the North right after he's installed officially, but pretty soon it turns bad. I'm Alexandra McLean, I'm a lecturer in the archaeology department at the University of York. Medieval archaeology generally, but particularly churches and grave monuments and the archaeology of the North.
0: Well, he sends two people up and they get killed, and so the North continues to rebel because they don't like
2: Southerners. (laughs) Generally, yes. There's a long history of Northern autonomy that predates the conquest. And there's antipathy towards attempts from the South to control the North, um, governmentally and financially in terms of taxation. The the Dane law, the, the official boundary of the Dane law has preserved the North from uh, having some of the higher taxes that some of the other areas of the country have had. Um, And they like that situation. Uh, And they've had a a degree of self rulership for a long time. And they also have a different ethnic makeup in in terms of there's a lot more Anglo-Scandinavian people living in the north and sympathies towards um, that past. And that's different than Wessex, uh, where the pre-conquest English rulers are coming from. And it's obviously very different from the Normans. So it's not just a story of kind of Northern English against Normans. It's a story of North versus South that has a history beyond the immediate conquest. Um, And William thinks that he can get a handle on this fairly early by sending up a, a native Northumbrian to be the Earl. But that is not taken kindly to, and he's killed. Uh, And then he sends up a Norman earl, and he is also killed. So there's this uh, definite kind of rebellion against these attempts at control from the south.
3: I always claim, and many people claim, that the Norman conquest of the north doesn't really start until 1068. My name is Sarah Rees-Jones, and I'm a Professor Emeritus of Medieval History at the University of York. So the castles are rebuilt... And new people are put in charge. Robert of Camus, uh one of his followers from France, is put in charge as the Earl of York. But the north is a difficult problem because a lot of the defeated Anglo-Saxon thanes have fled to the north, including Edgar Atheling, who has a claim on the throne himself. Um, some of them have also gone into Scotland, and Scotland is lending them support. And quite strong forces are building up in the north over that kind of interval of a a year or two that that the north is left while William concentrates on securing the southern part of England. So William comes back with force um, and the descriptions of his army are really quite impressive. He rebuilds the castles but that's not successful. There's another uprising led by a local Thane, Gospatrick, along with the the Atheling and forces from Scotland and the castles are destroyed for a second time and Robert of Camine is killed so William has to come back again with an even stronger army and then you get into an area of scholarly debate but the argument is that now he sets about thoroughly subduing the north over the winter of 1069 to 70 laying waste to the land starving raping destroying crops and livestock and buildings. A kind of burnt earth policy, which is still pursued by armies conquering territories that are hard to subdue down to the present day.
2: So after the first attempt to be friendly, he had the, I'm going to try once, I'm going to try again. At that point, he's very angry um, at these sort of repeated rebellions. So he comes up to the north with a large army and he decides that he's going to try to put an end to these rebellions with a very strong show of military force. And undoubtedly, this, you know, progress to the north and and what's called the harrying of the north is undertaken. There is a campaign over the winter of 1068-1069 in which he not only deals with York and its environs, but also uh, Yorkshire out into the landscape, into the countryside of, of Yorkshire. The chronicles that are written about the Norman Conquest... sort of a generation or two afterwards, so 50 to 100 to 150 years afterwards, are extremely expressive about how devastating this military campaign was. They talk about it in terms of hundreds of thousands of people killed and um, it's been, you know, called the genocide of the North and they talk about destruction of animals, you know, livestock, crops, you know, nothing was spared.
3: Never did William commit so much cruelty. To his lasting disgrace, he yielded to his worst impulse and set no bounds to his fury, condemning the innocent and the guilty to a common fate. In the fullness of his wrath, he ordered the corn, the cattle, the implements of husbandry, and every sort of provisions to be collected in heaps, and set on fire till the whole was consumed and thus
0: destroyed at once all that could serve the support of life in the whole country, lying beyond the Humber,
2: And then the stories of what the people of the North had to deal with after that, about how they were starving and they were refugees popping up in other parts of the country because of how difficult it was to live in the North. And some of the more lurid chronicles even say that, you know, people turned to eating their animals and and even, you know, uh, cannibalism. So great a famine prevailed that men, compelled by hunger, devoured human flesh that of horses dogs and cats and whatever custom abhors others sold themselves to perpetual slavery so that they might in any way preserve their wretched existence we don't know how much reality is in that because these are not being eyewitness accounts. These are these are written sometime afterwards. They are at pains to express that this was something beyond the pale. This was kind of extrajudicial violence that William was undertaking that wasn't necessarily merited because it's sort of understood you can do what you want to soldiers, you can even do what you want to the rebelling elite that are trying to fight with you. But when you go out and just start wasting the countryside and people who haven't necessarily done anything to you, this was seen as very problematic. And the Chronicles want to express that. So how much the realities of the details uh, is can be contested, but I think we can understand that it's a pretty substantial response by William that was unexpected uh, in terms of his violence.
0: In terms of archaeology, is there anything to... Those chronicles up?
2: That's a lot more tenuous, a lot sketchier. And part of that problem is what we have surviving. And part of that problem may be uh, an issue of how tightly we can date things. Can we date things to exactly around the conquest? Our dating is a lot less fine in archaeology than it is about when a chronicle was written. But generally, we don't see the same pattern of extreme devastation in archaeology. That we read about in history. And so, whether that's because the reality is that it wasn't as bad as the chronicles say, so the chronicles are, are embellishing for effect, or whether it's because we have a lack of ways in archaeology to tell, to record, or to, to measure that kind of devastation is kind of up for debate, I think. And until we do some more archaeology, perhaps in, in very particular areas, it will be hard to see. So there's one area where we do think we have good archaeological evidence of something as serious as the herring of the north happening, and that's in coin hoards. So more hoards from this period are found in Yorkshire than from any other part of the country at this time. Now that's saying something because there's not a huge amount of hoards from this period, but it is a pattern that is fairly certain and that there is more hoarding of coins in the immediate post-conquest period in the north of England. And that indicates two things. One is that people are hoarding in the first place, that they are worried for their portable wealth and they're trying to hide it because they're afraid it's going to be looted. And the second thing it means is that the people who did hide it were then less likely to be able to go back and get it because we find it. So that means they didn't go back and get it. Um, So that can indicate perhaps a level of um, death and destruction uh, for those people that intended to hoard those and and come back and and get them at a a later point once everything had calmed down. So that's a a decent indicator that there's some level of substantial disruption in the North uh, post-conquest. One thing that doesn't seem to align so well with this story of everything being devastated and all villages being burned is that we have an enormous amount of continuity in villages, layout of villages, and the churches particularly in villages. Churches don't move between the pre-conquest period and the post-conquest period. They tend to have been there from the 10th century or so Sometimes into the early 11th, and they're still in that spot in the 12th century uh, and being rebuilt actively right around the time of the conquest, maybe before, maybe after. That's where that precision of dating is difficult to say. Um, But there is definite activity in churches, you know, being rebuilt by landowners on the ground or being, you know, not rebuilt because of destruction, but just being added to, expanded built uh, again so those are indicators that actually maybe things weren't as bad on the ground in that immediate post-conquest period as the chronicles seem to say.
0: Well I've got a couple of observations about that one is that Yorkshire is still Yorkshire today Mm -hmm. and that if it was a mass genocide and a population exchange then you would expect there to be a lack of continuity.
3: People are writing about it a little later on. His, the writing of history usually lags just a little bit um, behind the the activity, if you like. It, you know, it's not as though you have reporters in the field in quite quite the way that we do we do now. Um, but certainly uh, William of Jumiege, who's a Norman chronicler, writing ten fifteen years later, you know, writes quite graphically about the. Impact of this uh, so-called harrying on the north of England. But by 1086, and obviously, you know, I appreciate that's quite a lot later, uh, we begin to have some other evidence through administrative records. So whereas you can never be quite sure whether to take the chroniclers at face value because they're essentially writing for, for political purposes to convey their perspective, their point of view... 1086, you have the construction of the Doomsday Book, which is essentially a survey of the king's wealth um, and his tenant's wealth, his tenant's in chief wealth, throughout England. So then we begin to have some administrative data about the wealth of England and critically how it's changed since the time of Edward the Confessor, because that is the purpose of Doomsday Book, is to assess the wealth uh, due to the king now, in 1086, but compare that with what was due to the king in 1066. And that's really the data that historians have used the most to measure um, and trace the impact of this military activity of William um, some 15 years earlier, really.
2: Yeah, and and I know certainly when they've done um, modern genetic studies, there's definitely a lot of Scandinavian DNA markers showing up in the population of Yorkshire and and the North. So it is not in any way, you know, whatever the the Chronicles say, there's no way there's a population replacement. The numbers of Normans coming in are extremely small. They are going to be at the elite levels, landowners and often high level landowners, so barons, often the owners of the individual manors, are the same guys. Sometimes there's new Normans, knights who come in, Um, but a lot of times, and we can see this in doomsday book, some of the same names who are landowners in the pre 1066 period are still landowners in 1086 when when doomsday has happened. Um, Some of them are the sons of people who were major landowners before. So maybe their dad didn't make it through the conquest, but the son still kept the land. And some of them even expanded their holdings from 1066 to 1086. So there is not in any way a kind of concerted Norman effort to wipe out a pre-conquest landholding class, much less a peasantry, because they need them to work their
0: manners. But the English landholding class will have slipped down the social scale.
2: Absolutely, yes. So there will be a lot of the high level English landholding guys. Some of them will have died in the fighting. Some of them will have been deliberately dispossessed because they were too powerful for the Normans to try to hang on to um, because they might be able to accrue followers for rebellion, things like that. Other guys who made the right noises might have been allowed to stay. They just now have a Norman baron over the top of them. Um, And so they're further down the social ladder than they were, but they're still holding land and still accruing wealth and and still have a place.
3: Um, I think there's a really substantial Change in the population over quite a short period of time. And the evidence for that is partly historical. So again, if you look at the Doomsday Book, there's a substantial change in the tenants-in-chief, that is, the people who owned property in York and held it directly from the king. And there's a large number of Norman, or French, Norman and Breton, really, followers of the king, who are recorded as landlords in York by 1086 and have replaced their Anglo-Scandinavian forebears so at that property owning level of society there's probably quite a significant change from Anglo-Scandinavian to Anglo-Norman
0: So is it just a case of Anglo-Scandinavian people being killed off run away or have they just stayed on but actually dropped a run or so in the social scale so that you've got new Norman overlords.
3: That's hard to tell from the um, documentary evidence. It's hard to be completely clear about that. But for example, there's one estate that has become the estate of William Percy, who's one of the uh, French followers of the king, and he becomes the wealthiest French landowner in Yorkshire and one of the most important members of the new emerging Norman nobility in the north of England. We um, still have the Percy family and they're now based at Annick <laughs> in Northumberland. He owns an estate that's centred around the church of St. Mary Castlegate, just outside the walls of the new castle, of which he's also um, custodian for a short period. And he's, the entry f- in the Doomsday book describes him as having 14 tenants who own presumably sort of individual burgage plots um, from him. And their names are all Anglo-Scandinavian names. But it's really hard to tell whether they are the continuing subtenants, if you like, from a previous Anglo Scandinavian lord, or whether, as you say, they're Anglo Scandinavian lords who have lost their status and gone down a rung in the ladder. I think, probability, it's more likely the former. It's more likely that they are the subtenants. Some of them were clearly craftspeople and priests and people who would not have been major landowners, who were just continuing, but with a new lord if you see what i mean
2: there are guys who are particularly valuable as transition figures you know there are people who know the landscape on the ground one of the ones that we see from york is minting the moneyers who mint the coinage a lot of their names are the same so they put who minted this coin on the on the the coins and we see the same names pre-conquest and post-conquest and that's extremely valuable for the normans they're very pragmatic they need that money to keep being minted. They've got guys in place. There's no reason to take them out of place just because they're English or Anglo-Scandinavian. So they keep minting. And they're very valuable in, in that post-conquest regime. Uh, you know, a lot of the arguments around recovery have been from Doomsday Book because Doomsday Book records the values of properties in 1066 and then the values of property in 1086, so 20 years afterwards. and a feature of yorkshire and the north is that there's a lot more property that has lost value between 1066 and 1086 so it was worth a lot in 1066 and it's not worth much in 1086 or there's a lot more entries of what's called waste which doesn't necessarily mean destroyed land but it means land that's not returning value probably agricultural like uh, arable value so growing crops and that has often been used as a shorthand proxy for the harrying of the north so people see they know that the harrying north happened because of the chronicles they see waste and low value in the doomsday book and they say okay so yorkshire hasn't recovered properly in 20 years but there's a lot more nuance in that and and there are places that are waste before the conquest so some of the entries say it was waste and it is waste now so, the north as a whole, and parts of Yorkshire, certainly, some parts of Yorkshire around the Vale of York, that kind of breadbasket of York as you come up into the, the valleys out, out of the north of the city, are extremely productive, both before and after the conquest. Some other areas that are more remote, there may have been productive areas and then they drop, where they may have always been waste. So, as a whole, um, Yorkshire is probably not working to its agricultural capacity in 1086, Maybe some of that's due to the herring of the north, the long-term effects of it. Maybe some of it's due to the fact that it wasn't as economically developed at the point of conquest um, as it could have been. Um, but you do see some areas within York, some manors, who are gaining value um, between 1066 and 1086. So a lot of it has to do with who's investing, who has the means and the reason to invest that's a lord on the ground, kind of in these manners, not a distant lord who's based in Winchester or something like that.
0: Now there's this term waste. Yeah. There's some debate about what waste means.
2: Yes, that's right.
3: Historians particularly have looked at the vocabulary that's used. And the the word that's most common in the countryside, not in the city of York, but in the surrounding countryside for property that has declined in value or whose value cannot be established is waste. And in early generations of historians who came across this term, like um, Capelli was one of them, who wrote an authoritative book about the Norman conquest of the North, he assumed that waste meant destroyed, that that was a measure of the destruction that was still visible in or recordable in 1086 from what had happened in 1069 to 70. But then later historians Uh, One person called David Roth, another person called David Palliser, said, well, wait a minute, if you look at the way in which that word and the Latin word, of course, because the records were in Latin, not English, was, was fastus, is used in 12th century records a little bit later. That's one basis for the reassessment of the harrying of the North is to actually say that the understanding of the terminology was incorrect among earlier historians and that they were translating this word waste as destroyed when really it meant, we
2: don't know. (laughs) You can see that there's a a big change um, between 1066 and 1086 in terms of development, agricultural development of the manors and things like that. So how long it takes it to recover, I think, may be extremely variable place to place. Some places may not notice any disruption at all. Some places, if they had had a worse harrying or no lord comes in, after the conquest and there's and the old guy got killed and there's nobody around to kind of has the money to start spending and to to start picking up uh, um, production then they may take a long time to recover so i think i think um it's it's a much more nuanced question than how long does york and yorkshire take to recover i think there's a a lot of variability and i think that variability is extremely hard to pick up in the archaeology and the historical chronicles
0: but the historical accounts say a couple of generations later Mm. imply that it was a massacre of people and that you had refugees going as far south as Worcester, I think.
3: Yeah, Evesham in Worcestershire, yes.
0: And they're starving, some people are resorting to cannibalism. How much stall should we set by those accounts?
3: Well... A new generation of historians is arguing that yes, those chronicles were works of literature um, and therefore we can't take them entirely at face value, as perhaps people did when they first discovered them. But that there is too much use of that kind of language for it to be entirely fictional, that chronicles were written as literature but they weren't written as fiction They were trying to write about what historically had happened and what could be witnessed and what could be evidenced. And then, as I was saying, there are other kinds of evidence and other ways of reading the doomsday book to think about that word waste. I then went back and looked at the doomsday description of York to see exactly what words were being used. And actually, the word waste in the doomsday account of the city of York is not used very much at all. It's used in one specific context and that is to describe land that had been um, taken over for the construction of the castle. So you can imagine there that land, perhaps with houses on it, would have lost its value not because it had been destroyed in a military conquest exactly but because it had been taken into and rebuilt in the building of the Norman castle But what was more interesting about the description of York in the Doomsday book is when you turn to the description of ordinary housing in the city and two-thirds of the housing in the city is not described at waste at all. It's not a word they use. They use a much more explicit word which is either destroyed um, so that it can no longer be inhabited or they use another word, vacua, which means empty, um, and therefore returning nothing at all. So that whole debate about the term waste in relation to the city of York becomes a little bit irrelevant because it only applies to the area in which the castle is built. What the Doomsday Book seems to be recording for the city of York is that two-thirds of the housing has either been so destroyed that it's not as inhabited as it once was and therefore returns less money to the king or it's completely empty and returns nothing at all. And that is also a little bit backed up, I think, by the archaeological evidence. So if you look at um, the Coppergate site where the Yorvik Viking Centre now is, for example, or sites in Warmgate, Hungate, Little Hungate, and Stonegate, there does seem to be evidence of abandonment of those properties for either shorter or longer periods of time depending which site you're talking about around about the time of the Norman Conquest. So in Warmgate for example, a site that had been quite intensively used for industrial production up until about the late 11th century then appears to be abandoned for nearly a century afterwards. So although it's the evidence about the countryside is debatable I I think the evidence for destruction and um, a radical change in the population in York is more explicit and less debatable
0: Right which doesn't really quite fit exactly with what Alex McCain was saying. She was saying that some kind of life Mm. goes on in York. Yes So what would be your best guess as to what happened in those sort of five six years
3: York's not completely abandoned um, I mean even when they talk about properties being less inhabited <coughs> so they're paying less money to the king they're, they're, those properties are not completely Im- abandoned the empty ones would seem to be if a property is described as empty and rendering nothing to the king
0: so if we're talking about say two-thirds of the housing mm. being unoccupied mm. where have those people gone Have they run away? Have they been killed? And who's coming in?
3: Probably a bit of both. And also the other thing to remember is, as I said earlier, we're talking about Doomsday Book is in 1086. The harrying of the North was 15 years earlier. And there's a lot happened in between. There have been at least three other invasions of York by um, northern rebels, Scots, Norwegians. In the intervening decade, including in 1075, one in which it was said that, um, you know, York Minster was set light to and, and burnt. So it's not as though it's a peaceful decade by any means, the 1070s, or that the Normans really have secure control of the city because it is constantly being attacked. So this damage doesn't all have to date back to the one event in 1069 to seventy? There have been later events as well. And then who's replacing them? I think there is a substantial French settlement. In fact, if you look at all England's county towns, if you look at Nottingham, if you look at Norwich, if you look at Hereford, you will find references after the Norman Conquest to a new French community coming in, a mixture of knights and merchants settling in England, um in the wake of the Norman Conquest. And in plenty of those towns, like Hereford, like Norwich, we know from both documentary evidence and archaeological evidence that entire new uh, districts of the town are built for those new settlers and will be called the French Borough, for example. So Hereford has a whole new settlement added on to it that's called the French Borough. A number of towns have that. In Norwich, a whole new town is built between the central church of St Peter Mancraft And the cathedral uh, and a new castle, and that's essentially a new Norman settlement with a new, or a new French settlement with a new French marketplace. Now, the interesting thing about York is that actually the street plan doesn't change that much as a result of the Norman Conquest, Um, and that's why we have so many kind of streets of Viking origin that still seem to, you know, survive. Um, And I think actually that's a measure of how much space there is in York for these new French settlers coming in. They don't need to build a new settlement next to the old settlement. They just settle in the centre. And indeed, if you, if you map where all these Norman knights that I was talking about, you have, who are recorded in doomsday as owning significant manors, essentially, in the city of York, they are in the city centre. They're in the bit of the river that's between the River Ruse and the River Foss. Um, they're not, they don't tend to be beyond the FOSS, that tends to be left to Anglo-Scandinavians. The Warmgate district is left to Anglo-Scandinavians for the next few decades. But that central area seems to become um, a kind of the Norman centre of the town. Um, but it's not new. They're replacing older or previous landowners who have either died in one of these many invasions or fled.
2: We might start to see it in things like church building, the places that have investment on the ground uh, at a fairly early stage. So our building uh, in their church and are commemorating in stone and things like that before the end of the uh, 11th century.
0: But what can you see in York itself that says... Castles.
2: <laughs> Two big castles. <laughs> and that's that's the biggest change in york i mean there are other things that as the 12th century progresses there are other things like the building of a it, it's abortive in the end they, they don't end up developing it but there's sort of a norman royal quarter kind of where the train station is um, but the immediate post-conquest what you can see is is clifford's tower on one side of the ewes and bailey hill on the other side um, and they are major architectural statements, infrastructure statements. They're building moths and putting these castles on the site where there had been no castles before, you know, or even major manorial houses. What are they replacing? Just settlement, I think. Um, I There may be details, the number of houses that are destroyed in order to build Clifford's Tower or something like that, they, they may say. Um, but there's definitely a, a portion of settlement is, is basically moved and destroyed so that they can put in Clifford's Tower. But you are on the edges of pre-conquest york too you've got very important sites controlling the river access and at the join of the foss and the ewes which is why clifford's tower is in such an important spot because it's at the confluence of those two rivers but you're not messing with the kind of commercial center where yorvik is around Coppergate. it's just beside the castle but they're not destroying that they're not they're not reorganizing that so i think they're thoughtful <laughs> about how they do this too. They're not messing with the Minster Precinct too much. Um, you know, the, the Minster is there, has been there, will be there, you know, throughout the later Middle Ages. So so the, the parts of York um, that they are messing up to put their castles in are not the central kind of driving parts of the city.
0: So Clifford's Tower, everyone knows, a couple of hundred years, that's got its own dark chapter. Mm-hmm. The one that you see today is made out of stone. Yeah. What would have the one on what's now called Clifford's Tower and the one on Bale Hill, which is on the opposite side, what would they have looked like?
2: A timber superstructures of some sort. We don't know exactly. Um, we have an idea, probably some sort of timber palisade and a central hall or, you know, something like that. But the fortification would mainly have been around the, the motte that it was on. Uh, And then whatever palisade and guards you can put up around it, um, as opposed to the kind of impregnability of stone at that point. There are a few Norman castles which are built in stone immediately after the conquest, but the vast majority of them, there are fairly rapid constructions in timber. And then later, I think Clifford's Tower doesn't get converted to stone until the early Thirteenth century, I think. Um, so it, it has quite a long period of, of mainly timber.
0: What is it with castles and the Normans? <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, well, they already make them in Normandy, so that's they're bringing with them uh, a, a kind of fortification that they're familiar with. So that's one thing. Uh, second thing is that if you've got the manpower, uh, a mott and a timber superstructure and a and a bailey are reasonably easy to build without skilled labor. You don't need masonry architects and and things like that, uh, people who know how to make stone stand up. Um, You can do this uh, relatively quickly, um, which is important for a conquering force. They need to be able to distribute themselves throughout the country and their strongholds relatively fast to make sure you've got a hold on the country. That being said, a lot of the castles that we call Norman are not actually products of the immediate post-conquest period. There are some that are that are definitely part of this immediate post-conquest landscape. A lot of them develop into the 12th century. So when the conquest is, you know, 50 years in the rearview mirror, uh, in a lot of cases, a lot of the biggest, um, most kind of, sort of grandiose Norman castles that we can think of with with chevron architecture and all these sorts of things are actually products of the the couple decades into the 12th century and and so on so but there are a substantial number of of immediate post-conquest fortifications that are built there are also not all mott and baileys there are some ring works and things like that that are not necessarily on big hills but they're ditched and banked enclosures and we see a lot of those are coming up on pre-existing anglo-saxon manorial sites so there's some really good examples, a uh, uh, Solgrave in Northamptonshire, Golfo in Lincolnshire, that's a pre-conquest, ditched and banked, Anglo-Saxon manorial elite site. And then it gets a ringwork or a Moton Bailey castle put on top of it or adapted into that uh, in the immediate post-conquest period. So they're also using... It's not a blank slate that they're coming into they're using the existing infrastructure of fortifications and things like that as well
0: and presumably they're pretty effective
2: yes so well so far as we know it's it's a pretty effective conquest you know all in all apart from you know the rebellions in the north and, and uh, some little bits in East Anglia around Ely um, generally it's a fairly smooth transition for William um, and I think some of that has to do a lot of it is with the show of force but he doesn't have a massive Army to, to put down you know, whatever rebellions come up. If, if there was a concerted England-wide rebellion, he would have had a hard time dealing with it. But because they're regional and patchy, he can deal with those uprisings. Um, but also I think it's a testament to Norman pragmatism in the way. They're, they're making an effort in a lot of their things to keep levels of continuity in the day-to-day working life of the country. So they're putting their shows of force, with castles and things like that, just to, to tell you that this is happening, you know, where they need to. Um, they are undertaking major building projects in stone at cathedrals and abbeys, which are big signs of their level of investment and their cultural power and things like that. And they're, you know, hopefully, probably hoping to communicate the God is on our side kind of thing with that too. Um, So we see it in in parish churches and cathedrals and abbeys, major rebuilding projects in stone. Um, But I don't think we necessarily need to see those as kind of a Norman boot, kind of squashing down an English populace. I think they're, they're infrastructure projects which lots of people benefit from. Um, In terms of jobs, you know, all of a sudden you need lots of people to build these things and a lot of unskilled labor, which you can contribute to. And they're bringing things to the places where they are established, markets and and money and and exchange and and religious life and and things like that. So, So I think there's a lot of pragmatism in the Norman conquest about keeping continuity where they can and where it benefits them, putting their foot down where they need to. And that, I think, makes for an effective conquest. So there's not a huge amount of reorganization of the streetscape, but there is some. And, and some of this has to do with how the land in York is divided up, uh, the sort of overlordship of the land in the city. And Sarah Reese Jones would be able to tell you a lot more about this. The land that was the archbishops kind of remains the archbishops and then there's a kind of dividing line which goes up goodrum gate and everything kind of down towards the river from goodrum gate is the king's land and what we see is a lot more piecemeal mini urban manors growing up in those areas um, and so you see lots and lots of parish churches and you see the kind of development of a kind of elite manorial urban class of landholders growing up in that king's area, because the king is not present in York all the time. He needs that to be sub-infudated, you know, developed by somebody that isn't his, whereas the archbishop is here, and he's more of a presence.
0: Well, to use an analogy, is that really a bit like Whitehall that it's where the civil service is, it's where the people who actually run things.
2: Run things are, yeah. Well, there's some question about um, around King's Square, that name might develop from an Anglo-Scandinavian kind of administrative... There's some speculation in the Royal Palace, anglo Scandinavian Palace, but there's no evidence of that. But it might stem from a sort of administrative governmental you know, spot there at King Square, um, where important things are happening for the kind of management of the city. Um, the other thing you do see, there's a lot of development around churches, and you do see some reorganization of the streetscape. Some of that will happen in the immediate post-conquest period, where churches that had been there change into something else so a a parish church changes into a friary things like that but most of that happens in the 12th century i think we see a lot more change of york and growth over time in that sort of long anglo-norman period as opposed to immediate post-conquest most of what we see in the immediate post-conquest period is going to focus around the castles and the the damming of the foss and the creation of the king's fish pond and, and things like that
0: which you can still see remnants of today Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah with Foss islands that is basically creating a big moat so you don't need to build a massive wall on that
2: side exactly yeah Uh,
0: and so clifford's tower bale hill the king's fish pond isn't they're all still here nearly a thousand years later but they're additions to the anglo-scandinavian york and it's gradually changing so it looks as if it's evolution rather than revolution
2: yeah Yeah. one of my kind of bugbears about the norman conquest is we tend to think of it as this national event but actually it's highly localized in terms of its effects and i think a city like york which has a thriving urban history from the roman period and the you know, Anglo-Saxons are building on that and the Anglo-Scandinavians are building on that and the Normans are building on that. It's always gonna be evolutionary. Um, so I think the effects of the Norman conquest are highly regional and highly local, depending on what's needed and what who benefits from that um, uh, afterwards. And for York, once you put the two castles in, you have control of the ewes and the foss. Once they stop murdering your earls, <laughs> once you, you've you made your point with the, with the herring of the North and they stop murdering the people you send up, you don't want to disrupt that urban establishment.
3: Alex and I disagree about lots of things. We get on really well. We're very good friends, but we disagree about lots of things. I, I don't see it as continuity. I th- I see the kings, the Norman kings coming in and being really determined to have a major impact on the city and to change it fundamentally. It's been very, very hard for them to take it. You know, they've had two sets of... of uh, rulers that they've put in, killed in these um, rebellions against the new Norman garrison. And they come down on the city like a ton of bricks, but also they build a lot of new royal institutions in the city. Prior to the Norman conquest, kings of England hadn't really come to York very much. They ruled it through the earls of Northumbria, and there was no real royal establishment in the city, and the king didn't really own very much in the city. It was mostly delegated to the earls of Northumbria. That changes radically um, under both William I and William II. They build not only the two castles, but they build a really large new royal palace, a royal house um, in Toft Green on the Micklegate side of the river. That needs to support infrastructure, so they build um, a royal larder, which um, and the keeper of the larder controls local markets and that's situated the other side of the river near where Thursday Market is now yeah. near that street that, that goes up to what we, what we now call it St Sampson Square I think there's a carousel there at the moment um, they flood the river Foss to create a fish pool they turn the entire countryside within a 15 mile radius round the whole city into Royal Forest where they have privileged hunting rights and marketing rights. So they're not only building significant new institutions in the city, the royal palace, for example, is where the county court meets, but they're also providing an infrastructure that can support um, a royal household when it's in residence in the city. And they visit the city far more often, as I said, than the pre-conquest kings
2: ever did. I think the kind of traditional view of the Normans is, is very disruptive, because of the castles and everything like that. But I think they they make a lot of effort to not be disruptive where it benefits them and where it benefits the kind of running of the country.
1: Whatever view you take, even as England sees two of William's sons succeed him as king and then a power struggle over who takes charge next, York will flourish. But the 12th century, he's going to transform the look and feel of the city.
0: My thanks to Professor Sarah Rees-Jones, whose book York the Making of a City 1068-1350 to is published by Oxford University Press, and to Alexandra MacLean, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Archaeology at the University of York. Simeon of Durham's words were read by Andrew Isherwood, and those of Aldrich Vitalis were voiced by David Newell. The spirit of York is Alison Willis. This episode of History City was made with the help of the Institute for the Public Understanding of the Past at the University of York. So my thanks to IPUP's director, Dr. Victoria Hoyle, and to researcher, George Young. The show was recorded and produced by me, Guy Morgan, of Soundstage North. For links to further information, please look at our show notes. And if you enjoyed the programme, why not write a review on your podcast provider's site? It helps spread the word. Thanks for listening to History City and we hope you can join us next time.